But it's curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello there. My guest today is Chris Sparks, who is a one of a kind human. He's a retired professional poker player who was once ranked in one of the top 20 in the world. But in recent years, he's applied himself to coaching and running workshops on decision-making, systems thinking, and peak performance. As you'll hear in this conversation, he's not only incredibly smart, but very wise. Before we hit record, I said to Chris, let's record a masterclass in mindset for staying calm and making good decisions in intense environments. And he didn't disappoint. A conversation ranged from talking about tools he used to stay calm or shift his state during high stakes poker games and how he eliminated mental distractions in critical moments. He shared some meta principles that he learned through poker, but that also apply to life more broadly as well as his approach around philosophy and productivity and how this has shifted over the years. I deeply enjoyed this conversation with Chris and I really hope that you will too. This episode of Curious Humans is brought to you by the one and only Nervous System Mastery, which is my flagship five-week bootcamp designed to equip you with evidence-backed protocols to cultivate greater agency over your internal state. The upcoming cohort will be running this November and applications are officially open until midnight on October the 28th. My guess is that if this conversation resonates with you, then you'd likely be a great fit for the upcoming cohort. We've already had over 250 applications and places will be limited. So if you're intrigued at all, you can find out more and apply to join at nsmastery.com. Okay, without further ado, please enjoy this uninterrupted deep dive conversation with Chris Sparks. Hello, Chris. It's wonderful to have you here. Hello, Johnny. Uh, Very excited to see you and to talk about things that I love to talk about. I know this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, how are you feeling in three words? First three words that come to mind, uh, let's say excited. I would say inspired and I would say, I'd say focused. Uh, it's been, I, I find, I feel energized by, it's been a day of conversation and I'm, moving to a new place tomorrow, which I'm excited to explore. Um, I'm inspired by, I've been getting a lot of really good ideas that I'm excited to have the opportunity to sit down and discuss. Mm. And I think I'm, I'm focused because this is as a topic that I think is, is very important in terms of mental resilience. And Mm. I'm trying, already trying to think about ways to, describe it in such a way that that makes sense to someone who no matter what they're doing, whatever they consider a uh, performance situation or a situation that they want to avoid in terms of stress and anxiety, how to, how to frame it in such a way that they can put it into action. Mm. Amazing. Okay. 
So before we get into the nitty gritty, uh, there's a convers, uh, there's a question that I love to start these conversations with, um, just purely for fun, really. And, and that is, were you particularly curious as a child? And if so, could you share a story about something that you were curious about? Amazing. I think that curiosity is maybe the most important trait to try to embody. And that's something that I bring myself back to so often is how can I be curious about what's happening in this moment? Curious about what's happening in the world, curious about what's going on in my mind or my body, curious about what's going on with this person sitting across from me, that if I can be curious, a lot of other positive outcomes flow naturally from that. So something that you've talked about that I think is very, very well put is creating the conditions. Uh, think about it is like creating the conditions for good things to happen. I think that that really key condition that I always start from is is being curious about what's going on. I would say I was a very curious child. And I think as I become more of an adult, it's trying to reclaim a lot of this sense of curiosity that I think a lot of us forget along the way as we try to be serious and grow up and, you know, be seen as someone who knows what's going on versus permission to play and explore. What some of that curiosity looked like for me, um, I would have piles and piles of books. I got very acquainted with, you know, how many more books that I could take out than the library maximum. Um, some of my favorites were atlases as well as books on sports statistics. So what am I, what am I kind of stupid pet tricks growing up that my parents tell me about is they would name uh, a player, say like a baseball player, and I would recite back all their stats. What's their batting average, RBIs, how many runs they score or things. I was really, really into geography and other parts of the world. So naming a country, what's their population? What's the tallest mountain in that country? That type of stuff. I, I loved to imagine and to try to understand through, you know, knowledge and numbers in particular. And a big thing for me growing up was inventing games. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, growing up on my own. And so mm -hmm. I would just invent different games to keep myself busy. This could be a game completely on my own invention or some form of game of like basketball or baseball and that I'd be playing against myself and how I threw it and how I hit it and trying to guess, okay, well, based on where I would position myself, that would land. So that's a double. Oh, okay. I probably would have like stopped myself from going left. So I would have stolen that ball and got out of bounds. Just trying to make all these projections on my mind of playing against a version of myself and how do I beat myself type of thing. And just a sense of curiosity and how can I figure this out? What's the best way of doing things? So, yeah, I, I've tried to come back to this sense of, hey, let's let's give yourself permission to optimize for interesting. Whatever you find fun, enjoyable, makes you feel alive. There's going to be something worthwhile at the end of that rainbow. Hmm. <laughs> I love that. And uh, I just had a memory of I was also an only child and I spent many, many days of my life uh, hitting a tennis ball against the garage door and, and angering the neighbors because <laughs> it was my, my only source of entertainment. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. The, na- the neighbors weren't a big fan of that one, but uh, it was, yeah, the tennis ball was a, was an all time favorite. I'm curious about the, just, just briefly the, the maps, like what do you think it was about maps analysis that kind of sparks that curiosity for you? I think it was a window into a world that I knew was out there, but didn't experience personally. Mm. Uh, I went to a very small school, you know, there are only five guys in my grade school class. Um, you know, very, very small circle. You know, my, my parents were, you know, middle class, like first ones in college worked the same jobs their entire lives. Um, you know, my friends were the the kids on my street down the street. You know, my my school was a couple blocks away. My my universe, my world was was very small. And I saw maps as a way to get this window into these exotic lands that were beyond my imagining. And I always thought, like, wouldn't it be amazing to be an explorer, the first person? on in this place and and charting it and creating this this map i think just the concept of a map is very interesting in that it's our our model of reality we're trying to create some sort of sense of the territory out there but the map is always going to be incomplete and there's always going to be these design considerations of what we include and how we include it how do you present it that's going to privilege some features at the expense of others. And so that was another thing that I always found really fascinating is looking at a topographical map that's organized by elevation versus a map that's more terrain. So like, you know, here's the the deserts and the forests, or it, it fo- chooses to focus on population centers. So cities rise to the forefront and these big wildernesses just become here be dragons, gray areas in the back. So it's like this, mm. this presentation of an organization of information aspect I found really interesting as mm. well. I, I think it was just a way of experiencing something at least secondhand that I knew was out there, but Maybe I would never have the opportunity to see, but I always mm. had that dream of as soon as I have the opportunity, like I want to put my feet in the dirt and I want to be the person who comes back from the expedition and reports back on where those dragons were. <laughs> That's so great. And um, that really resonates with me as well. I think both the two pieces around kind of understanding that there are so many different lenses through which we can view reality. And I think that'll really kind of um, tie us into what we're going to be talking about around mental, mental and emotional resilience. And, and also um, that idea of like, here be dragons and this terra incognita. That's almost how I like I spent my early 20s um, in this like adventure travel mode, kind of trying to see as much of the world as I could. And I feel like the last last five or six years have been more of applying that terra incognita here be dragons to my internal landscape and realizing that like my entire body <laughs> was this huge uncharted territory and uh trying to kind of use different tools to be a kind of cartographer of my own inner landscape um yes but it, it's that same kind of desire to explore the unknown that i think is probably driving us both which again kind of stems back from that curiosity um so beautiful. Well, how, so I, I don't, I also don't know this part of the story. Um, how did you 
go from being this super hyper curious kid with a love of learning to discovering the world of poker and and why do you think you became one of the one of the top players in the world like what what was it about you that enabled you to kind of really win in that or excel in that area sure i'll start with the the origin story and then we can speculate on success so i as as we've hinted at, I've always been very into games, play a lot of video games growing up as a kid, uh, notably a game called Microsoft Ants. I was top ranked player in the world. This is like an early real time strategy game. And this was my introduction to living on the Internet, essentially, and creating communities and exploring worlds and learning through the sandbox that is a game and the the various constraints and principles that get designed into that game. Uh, I stumbled into uh, Jin around the age of 14. So this is a two-player form of Rummy, a, a card game with 52 cards where you you hold your tricks in your hand and very much a game of incomplete information and in that you're trying to derive from the cards that the player is picking up and discarding what are those secret cards that they're holding in this hand, their hand. It's a very much a game of deception. Uh, achieved a perfect ELO rating in that game, but it was really just for, for kicks and bragging rights with other kids my age. Um, around this time, poker sort of rose out of obscurity through the invention of the whole card cam. This was uh, 2002, where what was kind of like a smoky room, very boring thing to watch, all of a sudden became a participatory spectator sport. Participatory and that because of the whole card cam, you could see the answer key. You could see <laughs> what cards players are holding and thus play along with them. Yeah. So poker skyrocketed in, um, in popularity. And some of my friends from the gin world started playing and introduced me to free roll tournaments. Again, remember, I'm the, I'm in 16. I'm in my, you know, my parents living room on dialed up internet and I could play a free roll tournament where if I enter for free, but I finish in the top 10 of a th- 10,000 people, maybe I win a thousand bucks, which seemed like infinite money. I arrived at college and because poker was on ESPN all day, this was the thing to do if you were a college male is you want to hang out with your friends. You're playing in a poker game, whether it's a frat house basement or the dorm room or even the, the, the college was sponsoring tournaments. It was really a fun time to be alive. Um, and I realized very early on because of my background in games and I had a real knack for poker and I was starting to make some, some pretty serious money with it, you know, paying my college tuition, ha- having some nice spending money on the side to the point that, Hey, this is something that I, I really enjoy doing, but it's nothing I always thought was just a temporary well-paying hobby while I was in this fantasy land of college. And, you know, long story short, I had one of these good luck, bad luck moments where my job coming out of school uh, working on television commercials for Ford Motor Company. This has always been my dream since I was young was to make television commercials. That's why I studied psychology. I've always had this real interest in like mm. how people make decisions, particularly how we are influenced by narrative. Well, mm. that job ends up falling through. It's 2008. I graduate. Not so great of a time for the economy or for the auto industry. And um, through certain kind of random sequence of events, say, well, I have all this time. I can do whatever I want. This game that I really enjoy that I'm making some money at, 
what if I spend all of my time and energy and dedicate myself to the game and really see if I can get good at it? Mm-hmm. Um, now, backstory, I would not consider myself a top performer at this time. I had never been in the gym. Um, my idea of a meal was a pizza and a two liter of soda. Um, I was kind of famous for emotional tirades. So when I would play <laughs> baseball growing up, if I struck out, which was very often, I, I'm not all that naturally athletic, um, I would take off my helmet, I would throw it, I would sit down at the, the end of the bench, and it's like, my, it's, my whole body's on fire. Like, no one wants to come within a three feet radius of me because I'm just like, I hate everything right now. And I just needed to everyone to know that this was not okay that I failed. And just obviously this is not creating those types of conditions for success. So I learned some really, I learned some really tough lessons early going in poker is if you bring this type of like lack of presence, lack of energy, I was just falling asleep at, on my keyboard while playing. And then like the mm. lack of emotional resilience, uh, I got punched in the face a number of times with like paying some very expensive lessons. Mm. So I was forced to have my come to Jesus moment is like, is this going to remain a hobby where you just keep shooting yourself in the foot or are you going to commit to doing what it takes to being one of the best? And like, okay, well, what are the best, what are the best performers doing? Well, they're treating themselves like cognitive athletes. They're training. They're spending a lot of time studying and they're in control of their emotions. They're self-aware and they do what's necessary to perform. And it's like, well, I'm going to try to figure it out because this is what's real and it's important to me. And that just kind of launched me on this journey of what does it take to be one of the best players in the world? How do I attack all these different dimensions in parallel? Mm. You fast forward two and a half years and I'm ranked top 20 in the world. So there was a, there was a lot of iteration along the way, a lot of help from, um, you know, surrounding myself with other really good players. But if I had to pick one factor that above all, influenced my ability to rise to the top is that I had a very fast iteration speed. Hmm. So something I like to say is that our improvement speed is proportional to the tightness of our feedback loops. So if I briefly unpack that, a feedback loop is an awareness of where things stand and how that compares to where I'd like things to stand. And then taking some form of small action to try to bring current reality in line with my vision of where I want it to be. And so I take an action and I receive feedback on how that's going and it feeds back into how things are. And so I say that tightness is that I'm, I'm checking on it, checking in on how things are. I'm taking some sort of action and I'm being aware of how that action is affecting how things are doing. So while my, I wasn't all that good or skilled in any of these areas, I improved very quickly because I was continually trying things and putting them into action. The real accelerant for me, especially was I started a consulting practice where I was training some of other really, really strong players. And this had two, um, two really important implications. One, you, you don't know what you don't know until you have to hop on a microphone and explain it to someone else. So having people pay me lots of money to teach them poker, 
really illustrated the parts of my game that were weak that I needed to work on. Mm-hmm. And secondly, working with other people who were maybe just a slightly below where I was, but also thought about the game at a very high level, did a lot of things right. I got this really wide sample size of all these different approaches that worked in various ways. Like every strategy has holes in it, but if I could find ways to combine all the strongest parts of all these strategies together, mm-hmm. I was able to create my own approach that was really, really robust across a lot of conditions. So my, my strategy, my, my way I approached the game was essentially taking the best parts of all these other players game and putting them together mm-hmm. and continually testing things and, and trying them and seeing what worked and then building upon that and then needing to talk about it and explaining it and then thus understanding it better. So when I'm trying to predict, like, you know, who do I want to work with? Like, who are the type of people who I want to have a strong presence in my life? That's the key variable that I look for is like, what is someone, what is someone's feedback loop? How quickly are they getting feedback on what they're doing and implementing it to become better? Because it's not where someone is. It's not the y-intercept. It's the slope. It's the trajectory of the line. And if you become someone who's continually implementing what's working and then doubling down on that and then taking the things that aren't having any outcome and redeploying those resources towards the things that are, it becomes a hockey stick very quickly. Mm. Fascinating. And... I would imagine that in poker, uh, you get very rapid kind of real-time feedback that is also potentially painful if it's if it's not good. And that can also probably be a motivator for improving. And, and as you're speaking, I'm, I'm having the, the images of, of like different types of maps. It's almost like you're collecting different maps. And then the more that you have, the more perspectives that you that you can kind of gain to then improve your improve your skills. So I, I'd love to um, maybe paint a picture for listeners like what what did it look like for you uh, before you stepped into the poker table? Like what were some of the things going through your mind? What tools did you use to kind of calm down your nerves and get into this place of presence and focus that you, that you just spoke to? Bear with me because I have this written out. So I I think that the actual steps, even, even though if they don't exactly apply, it'll be pretty interesting. Okay. So, if we think in this frame of creating the conditions for success, having this pre-session routine that if I run through puts me in the standpoint of I've already won. I've done what past experience tells me I need to do to create the conditions for success, to put myself in the best position to succeed. So if I do this, I can have no regrets about what happens. Mm. And that's such a superpower to go into something that is very intense, stressful. A lot of it is luck, timing out of your things that are outside of your control, but saying, Hey, whatever happens, I've done what I need to do to put myself in a position to succeed. So like let the cards fall where that may. So there's, there's a really powerful aspect to this, you know, pre-session routine I talk about as like a power up Mm -hmm. is not only do the things that you do 
set yourself up for success. Like allows your best self to show up, but it's also a mental thing too. And that you become more resilient to whatever occurs because you've created that natural separation from your process, the things that are in your control to the results, which includes a lot of things that are outside of your control. So before I would sit down for any session, I would have this checklist that I would, I would run through. And when I work with peak performers, say a, a startup founder about to get on a really big pitch to a venture capital firm or a, I'd say an investor who, you know, trades, you know, and they're about to have the trading session, the opening bell is about to ring. It's like having something that they do that gets them into state. Um, I find, I find that really important. Um, because, that's what they have under the control is the version of themselves that shows up. And studies show that the content of the routine actually doesn't matter. That having some form of routine before you do a performance situation automatically increases your discipline, your ability to persist, and your resilience to unexpected negative outcomes. Um, so again, it doesn't really matter what you do it's just as long as you are doing something. Um, so my my quick routine, first, when I'm playing a poker session, I could be there for a very long time. A lot of my poker history is playing online poker. And if the games are good, if I leave, I lose my seat. So I could be playing for 15 minutes, but I could be playing for 15 hours. So I want to feel like, hey, I have everything here that if I need to be sitting in this chair for 15 hours, that I can do that, that I have full permission to do so. So what do I need in terms of like water, calories? Uh, hey, if it gets really cold that I have a sweatshirt, all those things that feel really small, but you're 12 hours into a session and you're up or down thousands of dollars. I'm like, man, I'm really thirsty. I wish I'd get some water. It's nice to have some water on hand. So that's first one. I want to have everything that I need so I don't have to get up. Second is for me, like music is just one of those emotional cheat codes and is really key to get into flow. If I have good music, I can play for 12 hours, like, and just like the time goes like that total time dilation. Mm -hmm. If I don't, if I don't have any music or I don't like the music, I start to get irritated. I'm like, Oh, maybe I should go do something else. So having various songs that I like all lined up at various BPMs. So that I, if I start to feel like I'm getting tired, I can play things that are higher BPM. Yeah. Or if I find that, hey, I'm playing a little bit too aggressive, I'm taking too many risks, I need to slow down my internal functioning, I can start to play some ambient music. And automatically this has like a self-correcting mechanism. So having all that music on hand. Because, hey, I'm playing, you know, sometimes 24 or 30 games at a time and maybe only have a couple of seconds to change music. So that needs to be really accessible. Mm. Um, third, and this, this goes for like any sort of deep work focus type stuff is just removing any branches on the tree that lead to distraction. So when you think like 
anything else that I could be doing that is taking mental resources away from my single object of focus, which is I want to be fully focused on poker. So I don't want to have my phone in view. I don't want to have any notifications. I don't want to have any browser tabs. Um, anything that's top of mind, like, oh, I need to go pick up the dry cleaning. I'm going to make a note down. And so I have that. Okay. I'm not, I don't need to remember that it's been offloaded. It's like anything I can do. Imagine like my task manager on my computer. I want the task manager to have one thing. It's like play poker and everything else is like accounted for. So, you know, what do I need to do ahead of time to maximize the attention that I can bring to what I'm about to do? Uh, fourth, I try to get into my body a little bit. So I do some stretches again. I could be sitting for 15 hours. So what can I do to that? That's not as costly. Do some deep breathing, try to slow down my metabolism, put myself in the present moment, just remind myself, Hey, I am in a body I'm breathing. Um, because if I activate these tools up front, I'm more likely to be using them throughout the session. I'll be sensitive to my breath. I'll be sensitive mm-hmm. to my posture, the, the signals that my body is giving me, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Two more. I'm almost done. Mm-hmm. Um, fifth, this is a really big one. And again, anytime you're sitting down doing something important, to visualize it before you do it. Imagine this goes successful how did it go successful? What did I need to do for that to work? So before I sit down, it's like, all right, why am I playing right now? Like, who are the players that I'm going after? What type of style is going to work? Um, what's the type of play that I want to have? What do I want my state of mind to be? Like a little bit of affirmation type of stuff. It's more like if I can imagine what success looks like and I paint that scenario in my mind, it's a lot easier to follow. This is a really key principle in visualization is you always want to visualize the positive. I don't want to be putting these narratives in my head as like, don't tilt, uh, like don't make any really big mistakes. Uh, don't play in games or you don't have an edge. I want to say, okay, I'm only going to play games that I have an edge. I'm only going to make good decisions. I'm only going to pay attention to my opponents. I frame everything in a positive way. Um, so thinking about, okay. Before I do this thing that's important, let's imagine that it's successful and try to try to visualize that as much as possible so that I can maximize the chances of that happening. And then sixth is, all right, I'm going to open up the tables, see where I could be playing. And a lot of times I'll have notes on players. So it's, it's, it's really hard to study these notes on a player in the middle of the session because there's a lot of things happening. So I'm going to try to bring those notes to mind. What happened the last time that I played this player? How is he going to be expecting me to play? What are his weak points? That type of stuff. I have that activated. It already starts to inform my, my game plan. Mm. So all of this happens in like five to 10 minutes. It's, it's pretty short. And the temptation is because essentially like, Oh, I'm opening at the poker table. Oh, there's a seat. There's a seat. There's a seat. I got to hop in there and play. It's really tempting to just skip all this. But I found that like, if I do these things, it really increases my ability to play my A game. And if I play my A game, no matter what happens, I did my best. I have no regrets. And that, that just solves for so much. Thank you for sharing that list. That's, that's really helpful. And I was making some connections to, um, <laughs> my kind of pre podcast routine. Like I, I've, the reason I'm wearing a jumper right now is I 
jumped in the cold plunge before coming in and I got a bit too cold. <laughs> so I put on the, put on the sweater, even though it's pretty hot outside and similar thing, kind of getting, getting notes, doing some breathing practices beforehand to kind of downregulate. Um, although I feel like the chances of me losing several thousand dollars are <laughs> <laughs> significantly lower, fortunately. Um, but something I'd love to unpack with you, and, and this might be the main thing that we talk about today is, it's like, what do you do when, like, say you do all, all the things right, you have the pregame routine, um, you, everything's going well, but still the shit hits the fan. Um, and, and maybe you could share a moment that stands out for you as being like one of these monumental setbacks. Maybe you lost a lot of money, something bad happens. What, what was, what was that? And, and how, how did you think about recovering afterwards? And, and perhaps related to that, like, what are some of the, um, the mindsets or the, the top down protocols that you employ to kind of, um, increase your levels of mental resilience when you're in these high stakes environments? Sure. I, I want to start with the mindset and then I'll talk about some more of the, the tactical things that, that I like to do or recommend. Mm -hmm. First is just the mindset to expect the unexpected, to expect the inconvenient, to expect the suboptimal, that things are never going to go exactly the way that you planned. And if you become over anchored to the way things you'd like to be admit, you start to miss obvious signals from reality that, Hey, things aren't as you'd like them to be. It's this concept of, of gripping on to something that is no longer the case. So I find that dealing with these suboptimal um, circumstances, a lot of it comes from expecting them because think about this through a competitive lens. If you are someone who performs better when circumstances are suboptimal, which is always, <laughs> then this becomes a source of relative advantage. Mm. Right? I think it is like, this is just another thing that I've trained for. Mm. Um, you mentioned those sweaters. Circumstance that comes to mind is, Hey, you sit down in this room and it's 30 degrees. And everyone is obviously uncomfortable, but you thought, hey, there's a possibility that this room could be cold. I'm going to bring a sweater just in case. So even there's a very low cost if you don't need it, but you're sitting there all warm and comfortable and everyone's shivering. And this is a very simplistic example, but when you're playing something like poker, there are so many dimensions of, of potential advantage that come from this sense of I have prepared for this. This is what I've trained for. Like not only, do, not only am I not like threatened by this, but like, this is just another opportunity to differentiate myself. Mm -hmm. So I, I can't emphasize enough. The power of this mindset is that you just become completely anti-fragile. Um, this is a concept from the seam Taleb that makes its way around the Twitter sphere is that a lot of things in life are fragile. They don't like volatility. They would like everything to just stay exactly as it is. And what do you know? The world is going to continue to change at an increasing pace. So you can either put your hand head in the sand or you can become someone who's maximally adaptable. This idea of being someone who's anti-fragile is that you benefit from volatility. When crisis occurs, when the unexpected happens, on average, you do better by it. So that, that's the way that I've oriented myself as a mental competitor, as a person is, you know, 
how can I take advantage, be ready for this unexpected stuff? Mm. Part of that is I simulate it. We talked about my pre-session routine. I'm visualizing what could happen. I think visualizing the negative is really important too. Mm -hmm. I I call this Murphy Jitsu. So Murphy's (laughs) law is what can go wrong will go wrong. Mm -hmm. And Murphy Jitsu is before I do anything, let's imagine this goes really badly. All right. Why did it go so badly? Mm -hmm. And this is just as simple as I'm about to dash off an email. It's like, hey, let's imagine that they, I get the reply to this email is like, no, not interested, or they don't answer at all, or they say, hey, you're an asshole. Well, what, how could that happen? All right. I haven't hit send yet. Let's prevent that. And this is just a, just a, a obvious, but like rarely applied insight that we have this ability to simulate. Um, you know, my armchair understanding of the current state of neuroscience is that a lot of what we find neurologically rewarding is minimizing prediction error. That what happens out in reality is what we expected to happen. Hmm. For example, humor, when we laugh at something, that's our way of rewarding ourselves for being surprised. Like, <laughs> I'm such an idiot. Okay, <laughs> I'm updating my model of reality. This is pleasurable. This feels good. Hmm. Uh, and so by oh, simulating, we already have all this mental functionality here of simulating what's going to happen. We just need to activate it. Hmm. So I try to figure out, hey, where... You know, essentially, how am I going to die so that I don't go to that place? If there's a if, if there's a likely way for me to fail, let's prevent that failure in advance. And I can just keep cycling through until okay, it's like what's my what's my percentage chance that I think this will go well? All right, let's say it's sixty percent. Well, that's not all that good. Let's take five minutes to think about what's something that I could do to get myself to 70%. And you can automatically, once you get yourself in this frame, to generate some immediate quick actions you could do to increase your chances of success. Mm. And the obvious implication, it's much cheaper to make mistakes in your head simulating things <laughs> and actually acting them out in reality. Mm. So th- those are two really key mindsets that I found. One, expect the unexpected, mm. you know, Try to see it as a as an opportunity to differentiate yourself, and two, anticipate the unexpected and try to predict it in advance and prevent it if you can. That a lot of these failures actually are preventable if we take a moment to think about them in advance. Mm. Now, let's put all that aside. Despite all of our best hopes, um, we are in this situation that we would rather not be occurring. It is, it is, let's say we're in a suboptimal situation. So first is accept where you are and say, all right, given where I am, what's the next best action? What can I do next? When I'm at the poker table, it's assessing, am I still in a position to act on this well? What has changed from when I sat down in terms of the state of the game, in terms of my state of mind, like, is there a good reason to quit and to wait for a better spot? Um, in poker in particular, um, edge is very fleeting. It comes and goes. So a lot of the sensitivity you develop is, well, I had an advantage, but right at this moment, I don't have an advantage. So I'm going to, I'm going to quit. So I'm always trying to think about ways like how can I quit sooner, but return to return to things much more often. 
It's like, that's why I said sometimes I'm kind of notorious for this. Actually, my, I may get made fun of it is I'll play for 15 minutes and say, I'm not feeling it. I'm going to stop. And I come back an hour later and everyone would think that like, that's crazy. Like, Oh, just keep playing. I'm like, well, if I don't feel like I'm playing my A game, I'm not confident in my advantage. I'm going to do what I can to put myself in a spot where I can be confident at advantage. Hmm. Uh, and I think that this happens a lot is like recognizing here's where I am in this moment. It's like, that's where it all starts from is, is this awareness it's often talked about, but like, if you can solve for that, which comes from curiosity, by the way, right. It, the, the prerequisite to be aware of what's going on is to be curious about what's going on. Mm. The opposite of this is to be judgmental and judgmental is to have an mm. opinion about what's going on and say, Hey, I'd like this. I don't like this. And automatically encourage us us to avoid information that leads to it, a, a conclusion that we don't like, right? We still like things that we don't identify with like evidence of like, Hey, I'm not a top performer. I'm not productive. I'm not successful. All this type of stuff versus like, Hey, what's, what's going on. Um, so I noticed that, Hey, maybe I'm not in the right state of mind, for example, to keep moving through. So first, before I get up, it's like, Hey, there's a couple of quick things that I could do to potentially put myself in that state of mind. Um, let's start physiologically. And I run through this just mental checklist is when's the last time I ate? How much water have I been drinking? Have I moved around at all? Um, is there like, how is my breathing? How's my posture? Am I leaning forward or backward? How quickly am I talking? All these different things that I'll look at to try to give myself almost a dashboard of my internal state. Mm. Because once I'm aware of where okay. I am, let's say that this is like a, we'll use one dimension is arousal. Um, so um, correct me because th this stuff is, you know, I'm a little bit out of my depth intellectually. Say I have this like continuum and you have parasympathetic nervous <laughs> system on one side, you have sympathetic nervous system on the other side. Mm -hmm. And I realize that, oh man, I'm super fight or flight. Mm -hmm. Well, once I become aware of, of that in design terms, this is an affordance to do something about it. I can't do anything about it until I know where I am. But I realize mm -hmm. I'm super fight or flight and uh, I'm trying to be over here. I'm over here. But I think the optimal is to be something over here. So I automatically become attuned to opportunities to slow myself down, to relax, to be a little bit more present. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, let's change the music. Let's change my posture. Let's have more out breath. Mm -hmm. Let's pick something very specific to pay attention to rather than having my attention be so diffuse. Let me just pay attention to the person that I'm sitting across from and their mannerisms and really zoom in on that. And the single pointed focus will automatically bring me more into the room, more into this slower state. But you can't make this shift until you recognize where you are and then see how is this different from where I would like to be. And that order is really important mm -hmm. because if I start from, oh, relax, 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 relax. Mm -hmm. Well, that just creates this narrative of, oh, why am I not more relaxed? How do I got to like grit my teeth and do it? This is a little bit more gentle. This is, I just notice it's like, hey, I'm over here. I'm over here being all fight or flighty. Mm -hmm. It'd be nice to be over here. What are some <laughs> things that I could do that create the conditions that I can move over here in this direction a little bit. And, I'll, and that creates that positive feedback loop. Once you start to relax, mm. 
you start to get more relaxed. You start to do things that are more relaxing. It, it feeds in on itself and vice versa. There's sometimes that I want to be more confident, all this like power move type stuff. I want to like be more intense and speak faster to make this point. And I'm like, okay, how do I like get myself there? It's just the recognition of where I am and where I want to be. Mm. Wow. <clears throat> I love, I love all of this that you're sharing and I have so many thoughts right now. <laughs> um, I think one thing I wanted to just reflect on was I really appreciated that, um, the idea of doing like, I call it like a failure pre-mortem. I actually did this for the nervous system mastery course recently. And it's, it's such a counterintuitive thing to do. And yet it is so, has been so helpful for me. And it seems like there's a lot of overlap with, um, like stoicism as well and kind of stoic ways of thinking. I know Tim Ferriss talks about fear setting and I think we're kind of speaking to similar things. Um, but what I'd love to, yeah, explore with you now is, is when, when we, when we last talked, you, t- you spoke to this idea of cognitive canaries. And, and I think mm. that's, it's, it's a wonderful phrase and it, and it's really kind of speaks to what you're just articulating, which is, I think like really the primary predicament that a lot of people have is that when they find themselves in a suboptimal nervous system state, suboptimal meaning like for the environment that they're in, it is their inability to notice that and therefore to kind of course correct. Cause some people might mm-hmm. know the right breathing practices. They might know how to ground themselves. They might know how to relax. But if they're, if they're in their limbic brain, if they're kind of hijacked by their nervous system, they're not going to even think to do that. And generally the, the situation just gets worse. And so I'm really interested in your, how you, th- your principles and your strategies for noticing when your your mental and physiological state is out of alignment and 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 i have certain practices for this through cultivating interception through somatic mapping and kind of noticing like when i start to get angry i feel like a like a warning sign is like a tightness in my chest it's like oh interesting Mm. that usually leads to heat which then usually leads to anger which then usually leads to me saying things (laughs) i regret and so I, i i i'd love to hear like what are some of those um, cognitive and maybe somatic canaries that you track and witness in yourself. I'll share one of my, my favorite questions as a performance coach. And I think part of the, the way that I stay in the business is a lot of people, ourselves included, generally know the things that work for us the things that we quote unquote should be doing or would like to be doing. But all of the interesting stuff happens when you ask the question is, well, you know, this works for you. You know, you, when this, when you do this, things generally go well. Why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you doing it? <laughs> that's where all, that's where all the that's fun is. It's not that we don't know what to do, mm-hmm. but there's, there's something that's getting in our way. And the challenge that we have with our cognitive machinery is that we are very, very good at finding ways to sleep well at night since like justify what we're doing. Like I tried or I'm doing the best I can, but I'm really busy or I meant to work on this thing, but all these other things came up is that we're really good at finding ways to rationalize what we're doing and finding ways to do things that aren't always in our best interest, but justifying them later. So the key part of this noticing is that it needs to be set up in advance. 
So it's very hard when you are not in state, let's say you're in a state of mind of frustration or irritation or anger to see things objectively. It's like you're, 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 you're inside of a car, but the windshield has become completely fogged over and you're driving on the highway and it's a little bit sloshy. And the one hand you're trying to like defog the windshield and still navigate, like you're just not going to be in a, in the right state of mind to make objective decisions. So I think about this as preparing in advance. And that key phrase that you said was usually leads to is that we have by being a witness and going back through with a postmortem of things that we have done to have these signals that things, when this signal happens, when we get this warning sign, this warning light, that usually this is a sign that things aren't going well. And we've seen that, hey, when this happens, we don't know what causes it, but it at least correlates with these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, one example that I like to share is, you know, imagine I'm sitting there playing online poker. I'm in my office by myself with a closed door and I'm like, God damn it. Or some other, some other swear thing. And I say this out loud and it's a little bit, it's a little bit strange. It's like, I'm in a room by myself. There's no one there. Who am I even talking to? It's like that kid who's nine years old playing baseball again, sitting at the end of the bench being like, I'm so frustrated. That went so differently from how I wanted. And I want everyone to know how I'm not okay with this. Like this, this nine year old little kid has come to the surface and be like, ah, this is, this is not going the way that I would like. Well, what's cool is that is very objective. I cannot deny the fact that I have swore out loud. And that's what it's like. It's a clear, objective signal. And I can say, hey, when I've done this before, it's usually a sign that I am tilting. So what we were trying to do is prevent ourselves from making this, this subjective judgment. Am I tilting? Am I not tilting? Do I feel good? Am I playing well? It's more, what are the objective signs that I'm playing well? What are the objective signs that I'm not playing well? So it comes through the evidence that we have of our own behavior. Remember, creating the conditions. What are the conditions that we've seen that support or correlate with things that we want? How can we have more of that? Or we're using this framing, things aren't going well. Hey, I noticed that when I swear out loud, I usually don't have very good results in that session. What if I, every time I swear out loud, I quit playing, right? This is a very, this is, it seems it'd be extreme. It seems like a very extreme result. But remember, like, if I expect to lose when this is happening, I'm making more money by not playing. And what it does is it sets up an experiment mm-hmm. is, okay, I'm going to quit every time I get one of these signals that things aren't going well. And that's something that I can commit to in advance. I don't need to decide, am I playing well? Am I not playing well? It's these are the things that I've seen are signs of not playing well. So I'm going to trust those. And when I, when I'm talking to a client, I always try to put it in frames of a policy. Don't try to judge this exact situation, but create some sort of policy that you can commit to. And you can always audit the policy later. 
you know, I recommend every week or every month to take a look, hey, that this, do I really want to quit every time that I swear out loud? Or maybe I just want to take a five minute break. I can always change it. But the key is that you commit to it because when you most need it, you are most going to have all of those excuses on why you don't need to follow at this specific time. So that's that. That's why that commitment is so important. And rules like that not, have not only saved me so much money and so much, let's say, stress, humiliation, embarrassment from like, all right, I need to take a step back. But it's also when I don't see one of these signs that is additional confidence and conviction that mm. yes, I mm. am dialed in, True. right? It's like the dog that did not bark. So I came up with this term to, there's a, this is from, sorry, I, I like to drop in some obscure references. Beautiful. So this is from, this is from Sherlock Holmes. He's trying to solve a mystery and it's a break-in and inside of the, and it's like the door was never unlocked. It's like, how did someone break into the house with a door that never got unlocked? And it turns out the owner has a dog. And he, and and so it's like, well, the actually important fact in this case is that there was some sort of intruder into this house and the dog did not bark. Thus, the dog must have known the person in the house. And this sort of mm. breaks open the whole case. So oftentimes we're focused on the mm. things that did happen. But actually, a lot of the interesting stuff is in the unseen, mm. is the thing that could have happened or should have happened, but didn't. And mm. why didn't that happen? Mm. So that, that the idea of this cognitive canary is in the old days, let's say it's like Pennsylvania, um, they had these coal mines. And sometimes these, these coal mines didn't have the best conditions. They would get, you know, toxic fumes and people would die. So they derived this maybe not super humane, but Pretty effective brutal. method yeah. <laughs> of before we send people down into this coal mine, let's send some canaries. And if the canaries come back, all right, it's safe to send some people. But if the canaries don't come back, okay, let's not send people down there. So. I'm sending out my canaries. Okay, the canaries come back. I can keep playing. I, I'm, I must be playing very well. Canaries don't come back. Maybe I should take a break. <laughs> so good. So I, I'm curious, um, and maybe listeners might be as well. What are some examples of policies, say, outside of the world of poker that come to mind, either for you personally or policies that you've uh, kind of prescribed to clients? And I can think of some for myself, um, particularly in in uh, partnership. <laughs> but I'm curious what comes to mind for you. Um, the very first one that I, I was talking a client with recently was um, his relationship with alcohol. Mm. So this is a this is a common one, and you know, alcohol is. The only drug in the world that if you're not doing it, people think there's something wrong with you. And I think there's a, a lot of people who, if they had full freedom, would choose to drink less. Again, no, no judgment here. I don't think alcohol is good or bad. I try to support clients in what they want. Personally, I don't drink because I find that I don't make good decisions when I drink. Obviously, when I'm playing poker while drinking, that doesn't line up very well, but it tends to cross over to the next day. But this is just a personal choice that I've made. It's not that drugs are bad. It's not that alcohol is bad. It's like, I find that life goes better when I don't drink. So I have a policy that I don't drink, but um, it's a 
definitely a part of socializing. It's even a part of business networking for a lot of people. And it's, it's impossible for it to be something that they eliminate completely. So the challenge with something like alcohol is that one drink can often lead to 10 and they write off their entire next day and feel really bad about it. So it's trying to find a policy where they can get a lot of the benefits of drinking social and otherwise while minimizing the amount of costs that they can pay. So the challenge is once you're once you're in a loud, loud bar or restaurant setting, the context is created to keep ordering another drink. So this comes to anything to like what you want to order off the menu or while you're traveling is the more you can make this decision in advance. Be like, hey, my policy for the evening is I'm going to have one drink or two drinks or, okay, I'm not going to have dessert or if we get dessert, I'm going to have one bite. And making that decision in advance makes it much more easy for you to stick to it when all of the pressure, social and otherwise, is going to gear you to keep doing more. Mm -hmm. So talking with this client, trying to figure out a policy that he can test as an experiment to feel good about his alcohol consumption. How often he wants to drink, what circumstances he wants to drink, whether he chooses wine or beer, goes with hard spirits, all these different scenarios. And then we start to play with, okay, what if this happens? What are you going to do? Um, what's something that could happen that you have 10 drinks instead of your intended two? Okay, how do we prevent that in advance? Mm. And what you start to do is just create a scenario where someone comes into these situations confident in their decision making and there's no way to fail. Where even if they have 10 drinks and they intended to have two, we can go back and say, all right, what happened unexpected or how did this policy not work? Mm. And it's not that you failed mm. or that you're a bad person or that you can't control yourself or all these other narratives we tell ourselves. Mm. It's more that obviously we did not create the conditions for success. How can we change this process? How we change this policy mm. to make it something that you can stick to, to something you'll be more happy with the decisions you made the next day? Mm. So this has applications for how we choose to spend, um, allocate our attention during the day in terms of our work, in terms of our health, in terms of our relationships, how we spend our time, how do we spend our energy. And I try to approach things as like every decision echoes into eternity. If I see a cookie sitting on my kitchen counter and I eat that cookie, well, that doesn't really matter. One cookie doesn't matter, but it makes it more likely that every time I walk by my kitchen counter, I'm going to want to have a cookie. So I try to operate at this meta level in like this decision that I'm making right now. Is this the decision that I want to make every time that I'm in a similar situation? Hmm. If so, great. Like, how do I make that easier? How to make that more of a default? But if some, a lot of times the answer is no, no, this is not what I want to do. Well, this becomes an opportunity to take a step back and say, how can I add friction? How can I make it less likely that I take this easy but suboptimal way out? Hmm. Um, and if I approached it as like, don't eat that cookie, that's cookies are bad. Well, that just doesn't work because I'm going to rebel against that. I have a tough day. I'm tired. Um, I'm really hungry. I'm going to go for that cookie and not only going to have one, I'll eat the entire bag. <laughs> so I approach this as a policy and being like, Hey, in general, I'd rather not eat cookies. 
okay, what do I want my policy around cookies to be? How do I make it more likely that I follow it? Again, it, it feels a little bit like rote and weird, mm. but like these types of things I've found make it much, much more likely that we make decisions and lead a life that we can be proud of, that we feel a sense of alignment because we've taken the time to step back and choose, I can do whatever I want. What do I want? How do I create conditions that make that more likely? Mm. What strikes me as interesting in this, um, it's funny that you mentioned Sherlock Holmes because I feel like a, a major part of this process is having both the kind of pre-mortem, kind of like imagining the reasons that this could possibly fail and also the the postmortem and like really having that reflection process where you're getting curious and you're asking okay i i had 10 drinks like what are the reasons what are the possible causes that, that led to that and one example that comes to mind from from my life is uh my my part my partner like kelly like we had a kind of like a disagreement and we we have these kind of weekly check-ins and we were like like what what was the reason there and we'd missed two of our kind of like weekly check-ins that we used to do on Sundays for an hour and it turned out that like pretty much every time something erupted whether there was like some resentment on on either side it was generally because we'd been too busy or we'd just forgotten to kind of have that have that check-in and so it's it's really interesting like you've been saying when you start to look back and look at the behaviors or the things which um uh, are, are less optimal let's say and, and then what are some of the factors and reasons that lead up to that and then like you like you say you can then put policies in place and reverse engineer right how can i um hopefully avoid this in the future and, and the way that i think about this with nervous system mastery is almost like um it's like bringing the choice points kind of further back so instead of realizing that you're triggered when you're like screaming your head and shouting at someone it's like you can bring it back a little bit to like oh when i swear or then bring it back to like oh when i notice this feeling in my throat and my chest and then keep bringing it back even further and the more self both cognitive self-awareness and somatic self-awareness that we have i think the more that we're able to kind of catch our own behaviors early and then make different decisions or at the very least put in place policies which help to mitigate that Yes, I, I love to build upon that. You know, first this concept of a weekly check-in. This this is one of my top recommendations when a client or a friend um asks for advice on communication with a partner. Mm. Um, I think a lot of times uh when we tend to be people, I, I said we is like people who I imagine are listening to this tend to like to control things and optimize things and have like, Hey, here's a schedule. Here's what I'm doing. And all these annoying interruptions. Like I wish, I wish my kids wouldn't come bother me while I'm on a podcast or I wish my partner wouldn't, you know, try to ask me about this project at home at 11 PM. We're about to go to sleep. And the advice that I usually give is these things are popping up at inconvenient times because you haven't created a better time for them mm. that, you know, these interruptions mm. is will, will find you, yeah, well said. but if you can be intentional about, Hey, this is when we're going to sit down and work on this together, mm -hmm. or this is the time kids partner that I'm going to be completely focused on you. And this is just for us. And I'm not going to be on my phone and I'm not going to be thinking about work. Mm -hmm. Well, you can be present in that time. And 
automatically that time is more enjoyable and they respect the times that you're not doing that, that you're trying to focus, that you're trying to fall asleep. Mm. So I, I really love this. This kind of thing is like this partner board meeting where we both come with an agenda mm-hmm. and here are all the things that we want to talk about, things we're working on together, um, projects around the home, mm-hmm. uh, travel plans, things we want to give you to each other in terms of feedback or wanted to talk about, yep. that if we can have this, this closed container for it, yep. Um, all of these things are going to come up and be dealt with sooner before they become crises or before they come up at the, at the least, least convenient time. So I find this is like another one of those practices or habits for, for performance, for resilience, for catching things before they become a problem Mm -hmm. is having these regular Mm -hmm. check-ins. So regular check-ins with people on your team, people in your household, as well as with yourself. Mm. This this process of a weekly, monthly, annual review, pick your time period, but like have this time where you check in with yourself and saying, how are things going? These things you're working on, are you making the progress that you'd like to? Um, what's not working? Is there something you'd like to try instead? What are you learning recently? How can you put that into practice? That again, coming back to this concept of the feedback loop, the more mm-hmm. often that you're checking in on how things are going and putting something into action, the more you're going to converge on a life that you want to have. Mm-hmm. Because with enough iteration, you'll finally find something that works. So I have this concept of the improvement loop, which is where at any time we're planning, we're experimenting, we're reflecting, planning. We're deciding what we want to do. We're creating a simulation, deciding, all right, here's here's how things are going to work. We're experiment. We go out there. We try things. We're tracking. We see how it's going. And then afterwards, we step back. We have a check-in. We reflect and say, how are things going? Is there anything we'd like to do differently next time? And that feeds into the plan. So I'm always kind of iterate through that in every dimension is, what do I want to do? Track that. How's it going? Feed that into what I want to do. So just with that, that small practice of, Hey, sit down with your significant other, maybe for an hour once a week and see how things are going and how you can advance your shared goals to create the life that you want to live together. Man, like just an hour, but it saves you so much time, headaches, stress in the long run. Mm. Because believe me, if you don't set aside that hour, it'll take up much more than an hour. <laughs> That's very well said. And I, <clears throat> I really love the, the kind of experimental approach to life. I think there's a Rumi quote where he says, be a scientist of your own experience. And something about that as well is, is if everything is either planning, experimenting or reflecting, again, there's not much judgment in there because if something doesn't go well, <clears throat> then it's like, oh, the experiment, you know, it, how interesting it didn't go as I expected. And then you can reflect and kind of figure exactly. out why. And, and, and with regards to the, the check-in as well, I think something else that I love about it is it creates a, a container of safety where things that might be more vulnerable to share, say if there's like compassionate feedback or grievances or things that you've been kind of harboring, it's actually like welcomed in that space. But it, but it might not be if your partner is like cooking dinner or doing something else. Yes. Like that's, you're less likely to have a, a fruitful and nourishing and productive conversation when the kind of shared intention hasn't been set. So well put, um, you know, creating progress in anything I find comes down to scheduling, creating the space 
for it. Mm. Um, so if, if anyone tells me, Hey, I'm not making the progress that I would like in this area, there's two dimensions to focus on. This is a good, really good query for yourself. If you're sitting down and review, the first is, well, are you controlling for inputs? You, you're not making progress in this area, but are you prioritizing it? Like, does your schedule reflect that this is important to you? You say you really want to recruit that next engineer. Show me your calendar. How much time did you spend on recruiting last week? And like, if you're not prioritizing it, well, let's have a conversation around that. Is this really important to you? What are the things that are getting in the way of doing this? Maybe we should find ways to do a little bit less of that. Um, that's where it always starts. Like 80% of the time when someone says, hey, I'm not making the progress that I would like to have. It's like, well, are you invested in it? Are you prioritizing it? And then the, it, the conversation goes, all right, well, yes, actually, I'm let's say that we use this engineer example. I'm trying to hire an engineer and I had 20 interviews last week. Okay, well, clearly the inputs are there. Now let's talk about your approach. But if you solve for the inputs, you'll automatically start to get feedback on what you're doing is working and you mm -hmm. can start to double down on that. Mm -hmm. So that's always the first place to start. Mm -hmm. So it's like, are you prioritizing it? If so, okay, let's talk about your approach. Well, let's don't not worry about approach until you're at least investing the time to get feedback. Yep. Well put. Um, the other just curiosity that I had that uh, I wanted to run by you was, is there anything that you feel like you've had to unlearn from your success at poker? And, and I ask that because I have a couple of really good friends in Bali who um, both found me through breathwork and they've, they both became incredibly adept at having a high capacity to tolerate emotions, but they then ended up kind of pushing those emotions down in their personal relationships and it became very problematic. And so they then have been going on this journey to kind of increase their somatic awareness and emotional fluidity through a bunch of things. So I'm, I'm curious what yeah like what comes to mind what thing or habits or ideas even have you had to unlearn from your success in poker sure one that's near and dear to my heart is this notion of positive sum versus zero sum so mm. poker is a zero sum game mm. meaning that anything that i win comes at the expense of someone else mm. at the table so it's everyone there's one pie and we're all fighting over like who can eat the most pie before everyone else. And I like to believe that I'm able to compartmentalize this very killer instinct doggy dog mentality that's necessary to succeed in an environment like poker and leave it on the table mm. and live a life outside the table that's positive sum where I believe that there's more than enough pie out there for everyone. And I want to provide way more value than I try to extract in return. And that has been like an ongoing multi-decade yeah. effort to work on myself in such a way that um, I minimize the leakage from my poker identity to my identity in my important relationships, in my, in my business, in my work, on my mission and with my clients. And I'm, I try to be sensitive to ways that, you know, can become very transactional or instrumental in my dealings with people. And I think that's one of the things that poker really instills in you mm -hmm. that's difficult to unlearn is seeing 
um, seeing relationships, seeing interactions as transactional, as mm-hmm. as a means to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's some, that's one that's really that's near and dear to me is like as much that poker has taught me about so many things and how important I think the lessons from poker are as a culture, as a society, um, for how we understand ourselves, how do we manage risk? How do we understand decision-making all these types of, t- of topics? Um, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a game where you're trying to take other people's money. Hmm. Um, related to that, another one that comes to mind, uh, poker is a game of information asymmetries. So this is just a fancy way of saying that you win in poker by extracting more information from other players than you give them. This is classically illustrated by the idea of a poker face that, hey, like, you know, I'm going to present this image to you as if I'm dead inside and you can't pick up anything on me. Which, by the way, is a complete fallacy. This whole concept of a, a poker face is a little bit overblown. But I'll put that to the side for a second. But it means living a life in a lot of ways because your life outside the game really influences your life on the table when you know you interact with players off the game of poker. That you're continually trying to get people to tell you things and share with you things and revealing as little of yourself as possible because the more that you give away, the more that it could be used against you, which in the limited game framework of a poker game is very true, but obviously does not extend to life outside the table that I find that vulnerability, authenticity Mm -hmm. gives other people permission to share in the same, right? And trying to not only match people's energy, but to lead them by, by oversharing, by giving them a sense of, giving them a sense of this who Chris is. This is what Chris cares about. Mm -hmm. This is what he's about. This is why he's on this earth. Mm -hmm. And people responding to that and giving themselves permission to share their own feelings and thoughts there, even if they aren't coolly, fully baked out. that That's another growth area and something that I try to be mindful of is I want to just open source everything. And mm. um, I mean, half the things that I say today, hey, maybe a year or two years from now, I'll be like, oh, I, I feel completely differently now. Or, oh, I, I know so much more about this. I wish I could go back and change that. But if I if I'm not sharing, if I'm not putting it out there, how am I going to converge on truth? So it's this change of this mindset of like hyper competitive. Like I want to only share things if it's to my advantage versus I don't want to be strategic about how I present myself to the world. Exactly. I don't want to be thinking ahead of like, Oh, should I share this? Is this too personal? Am I sure about this? I just want to be as authentic as I can be to myself. That's one of my three core values is integrity is just like do what I think is best and most authentic to I think I am, which is continually evolving, of course. Mm -hmm. But that that's something from poker that I continue to unlearn Mm -hmm. is poker is hyper competitive. And I think it's best encapsulated in this saying from the Tao Te Ching, which is the biggest winners don't compete. Mm -hmm. So, how can I create an environment, interactions, a life where 
I am not premeditated. I am not sharing things because I think there's an advantage for me. I'm doing it just because that's what my instincts tell me to do. That's who I think I am. Um, again, all the things from poker are a double-edged sword. I'm, all this stuff leaks out in insidious ways, but I return to that intention of, you know, how can I be completely non-competitive? Mm. I love that. And it reminds me of, I'm sure you've come across James Cass's The Finite Versus Infinite Game. And it sounds like you've gone from kind of mastering the finite game into how do you play and win at the the infinite game. And that's a beautiful way to... Extremely influential book. Way to put it. Um, so I'm, I'm conscious of time. Um, would it be all right to ask a few rapid fire questions? Your answers don't have to be rapid fire. And then we'll, we'll begin to wrap up. Let's do it. Okay. So first question, what was your brain trust and what was a benefit that came from that? <laughs> okay. So I, man, thinking back to, okay, 20 year old Chris reading all of these self-help books. Uh, I was given a book by my college roommate who was the sort of like most likely to succeed super entrepreneurial type who I looked up to a little bit. And he's like, read this book. And it was Think and Go Rich by Napoleon Hill. Um, there's a derivative of that. That's one of my most read books. Uh, which is the magic of thinking big. I'd have to look up the magic of thinking big. That one is by David Schwartz. Mm. So those two books, you know, these are like 50s self-help. So like very dated, but still very applicable today. Um, there was this one concept of the council is someone who is successful, has a council of people, each with like very specific backgrounds and and perspectives and skills that you could call upon them when you're when you're stuck when you need advice and they can help you through and that really stood out to me is like i want to build my council where we become like a shared hive mind mm -hmm. where instead of just having my own you know knowledge experiences everyone in the group can draw off everyone in the group so this has taken various forms in in masterminds that i've participated in and led as part of um, forcing function uh, every time that i lead my group coaching program team performance training um, we do that twice a year it's kicking off again in september um, i invite them into a brain trust of not only people currently going through the course, but everyone who has going through the course. And the whole idea is just a rising tide rises all ships. Instead of creating this feeling that, hey, there's only so much pie, we can all share at each other's success. Mm -hmm. And the lessons that someone else is learning can be brought back into the groups that we don't need to make those failures ourselves or that we can stand on the shoulders of their success. So, but it all started with this, this early idea of, wow, like there's a lot of really smart, talented, ambitious people there. I would love to have their advice. And how can I create something that felt like we're all in this together? And that, that's how the brain trust was created. Beautiful. What is one experiment that you're currently running in your life? Which one to talk about? Um, okay. I have to, the first one that comes to mind, um, I am getting back into meditation again. Uh, <laughs> talking about this to get a little bit of, um, let's say, accountability 
on it. It's it's the habit that I'm embarrassed that I keep falling off on, even though it touches on everything. And I've always treated a little bit like a checking the box type thing that I'm going to do 15 minutes and that's good. Mm. And it's fallen off a little bit. I, I spent the summer kind of gallivanting around Europe and, you know, like, a, like a lot, habits are very contextual. I fell off on meditation. So, I want to try to try the real extreme experiment of, okay, if I'm not finding the returns apparently because my behavior isn't lining up from 15 minutes, what if I did an hour? And that feels a little bit counterintuitive, but I'm sure people who are interested in the things you are, Johnny, can understand that there's, sometimes there's an accelerating returns from depth. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if I'm, if I'm feeling this like, oh, I'm not sure if meditation is for me, well, let's prove or disprove this assumption completely by giving the experiment full time to run. Mm. So my experiment for September is to meditate for an hour a day. 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the evening, and I'm going to commit to do it for 30 days. It's important to commit up front. And at the end of September, I can say, all right, I can meditate more or I can never meditate again. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. But I want to actually give this a shot because I suspect that it'll have a big impact. And I know I'll learn a lot, but I need to create some stakes here because mm -hmm. clearly if I keep, if I'm on again, off again, what I'm doing isn't working. Mm -hmm. So that that's one that I'm, I'm excited and curious about the future results. That's great. It reminds me of the quote, if you don't have five minutes to meditate, you might need three hours. <laughs> I think. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Yeah, Very yeah, true. I'm sure that'll be a powerful one. And then last question, what are you most excited about? in the coming months or years to come? Something that I've been playing around with a lot is what are the thing that only I can do? Mm. I, I find that if the more that you niche down, the more interesting that it gets, that thinking in terms of like, only I can do this, I might hit on something that's a little bit more universal. Mm. A lot of forcing function has been this, this mission to uncover best practices of peak performance, I like to say. And this has allowed me to explore a lot of different boundaries and wade in a lot of different waters and become somewhat of an expert, um, sometimes a pra expert practitioner, or at least an expert observer in things that seem to work for everyone. How do we structure our day? How do we create these before performance routines? How do we frame what we want in terms that we actually take action towards it? How do we maximize our attention? Some of the things that we've, we've hinted on today that are very fertile ground, but things that a number of people are qualified to talk about. So what am I most qualified to talk about? It's these lessons from being a poker player at the top of his game, as well as very proficient in a number of other games. What are these universal principles from games that apply to the games and roles we find ourselves in, mm -hmm. in daily life? Mm -hmm. And this is something that I'm, I'm working on in the background is how can I take all the things that I've learned from games and create a framework that 
people be, can become successful and win at the games that they choose to play. Mm-hmm. So that, that's something that I, I'm, you know, thinking about working on in the background that I'm, that I'm really excited about right now is, you know, how can I, now that I've figured out this whole peak performance thing, obviously I'm still very much learning, but how can I build a layer on top of that? That's completely unique to me and what I can do and isn't competing with anyone else. That's, that's what's top of mind for me right now. Beautiful. It, it sounds like I'm imagining a book that's from the from mastering the finite game to to mastering the infinite game. That sounds great. <laughs> well, this has been this has been such a pleasure. Um, I have to run off to a uh, chiropractic appointment, but uh, where can listeners lead, uh, learn more about your your work, your programs? I know you have a great podcast. Um, what's the best place to direct listeners to you? I try to keep this list as short as possible, <laughs> but I'm just exploding. We, with we can resources. include it in the in the show notes as well. <laughs> Cool. So, you know, my, my consultancy where my focus has been the last six years is forcing function. And we have a number of amazing resources there, articles, templates, exercises, interviews that you can check out for free. Um, encourage you to do so. Two in particular that I like to point people to that I'm really proud of. First one is my peak performance workbook, Experiment Without Limits. This is 90 pages of my top recommendations for peak performance with step-by-step prompts and exercises to actually install those recommendations into your life. I spent an entire year putting this together. It's something that I'm I'm really excited about. And you can download it for free on our website at forcingfunction.com slash workbook. Uh, And I've had a really fun summer. And the big thing that I worked on this summer was updating our performance assessment. So a common challenge that we have as performers is there's so many opportunities that we have to improve our productivity and performance. But what should we do next? What is our next best action? And so this is a 20 question test that I created to illustrate, hey, here are the things that you could do to move towards a top performer. But most importantly, this is the one thing you could do right now, which would have the most impact. So if you take this test, you'll get access to a free training where I walk you through, here is my top recommendation for you specifically if you want to improve your performance. So you can check that out at forcingfunction.com slash assessment. Amazing. Thank you so much. And we will include all of those links and more in the show notes. Okay. Well, I would love to close with a line from Rilke. Uh, he said, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. And with that in mind, what is the question that is most alive in your consciousness right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? So coming back to our subject, our kind of overarching theme of mental resilience, I find that a very helpful posture to take is that all of our behavior is serving us in some way, that even if it's not clear to us, anything that we're doing does have a purpose. So if we can understand that, we can find best find a path forward that we feel mostly aligned. So the question that I would have you ask anytime you do something that you're like, huh, maybe I don't want to do that so much is how is that behavior serving you? Mm. Beautiful. Okay, well, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. 
It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.